Welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director, Mary Alice Parks. And I'm ABC News Correspondent, Serena Marshall. And your ears do not deceive you. We are not Rick and John. (laughs) The women have taken over this episode. The two of them are out. They'll be back next time, but you're lucky. You get the two of us. Yes, you get us. We are, <laughs> as usual, Serena, breaking down just a ton of news. Not Never only in Washington, down here in DC, Mary I mean, Alice. around the world, we were talking um, all morning trying to keep up with the fast moving news out of Turkey. It has been uh, constantly changing. Local Syrian forces are reporting an intensive bombardment by Turkish jets on military positions and on civilians. There's talk right now that U.S. officials might have been given a heads up. But again, like I said, a developing story. It is changing by the minute. The Turkish president announced that on Twitter Wednesday that that incursion has begun. It's interesting as we're watching these messages come out of the White House, the Department of Defense and the State Department. Uh, Not always on the same page. But Mary Alice, more interesting in some ways is watching the messaging coming out of Capitol Hill because that is a big contradiction to what we're hearing from the administration. Yeah, you're exactly right. While the administration seems to be stumbling on this one to get their messaging in order, we've seen Republicans and Democrats lockstep together. They united. The president has united Republicans and Democrats, but against him when it comes to the Syria announcement. Just incredible. One of uh, his biggest allies and defenders on Capitol Hill, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, has been going toe-to-toe with the president on this one, using bold language to push back. And to the president's probably favorite medium, Twitter, to push back. You're right. (laughs) Lindsey Graham using Twitter, tweeting just this morning, I urge President Trump to change course while there's still time. Obviously, Lindsey Graham has been very concerned that the administration was talking about the withdrawal of American troops from that region in advance or around uh, the same time that Turkey is launching this offensive. I mean, a real call by Republicans for him to not do that. Not just to not do that, but Lindsey Graham has said that they're going to question whether or or not, they're going to ask for the suspension of Turkey from NATO. He talked about a bipartisan sanctions bill that would be veto-proof to essentially undo what the president has done when it comes to U.S. troops in northeastern Syria. And that is something because time and time again, Lindsey Graham has been a strong advocate of the president, but this is definitely an issue he is disappointed with the president's decision on, and it's something we've seen Republicans and Democrats unite over, and unite over Mary Ellis in the midst of an impeachment investigation. So you better believe that they are strongly against the president on this. You have uh, Mitt Romney and Chris Murphy both saying that they are planning on bringing up administration officials to Capitol Hill to testify about the decision around this. Now, they made that statement before this military offensive by Turkey was beginning. So now that this operation has gone underway, you can we can expect in the next week or so those officials to be brought to Capitol Hill and expected to answer some tough questions. Yeah, and I'm just I just continue to be surprised by these Lindsey Graham tweets. American isolationism did not work. It will not work now. When it comes to fighting ISIS, it's a bad idea to outsource American national security to Russia. To believe otherwise is dangerous, he tweeted. Uh, he, he went on to say if media reports are accurate and Turkey has in fact entered northern Syria, uh, we don't have any evidence right now of a ground offensive, but we have this air offensive. 
Lindsey Graham tweeted, that would be a disaster in the making. They are going to take the administration to task over this one and demanding a briefing. Demand a briefing, especially because the White House messaging has been really all over the place with this. Now, remember a couple of days ago, the president said that if he didn't like or approve of the way Turkey did this uh, offensive, that he could stifle them economically and economic sanctions on Turkey. But now we've learned that the White House has issued a statement saying the U.S. does not endorse Turkey's invasion of Syria and that the U.S. has made it clear to Turkey this operation was a bad idea. That was not the messaging that the White House put out on Sunday when they first announced the U.S. withdrawal of troops in the region. And all of this happening, like you said, under the cloud of an impeachment inquiry. So you have the president battling with his own party over foreign policy while battling with Democrats, at least, uh, over his own actions and this growing impeachment inquiry that is just picking up steam. Uh, We saw Tuesday night the White House sent a letter to the Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi arguing that Democrats were only intent on overturning the results from the 2016 election, saying that they were not planning to cooperate. This letter was something, Serena, it was rather scathing. Mary Alice, what really kind of took my breath away in this letter is that Republicans in the White House are saying that this inquiry, quote, lacks any legitimate constitutional foundation, any pretense of fairness, or even the most elementary due process protections. And therefore, they go on to say the executive branch cannot be expected to participate in it. They're essentially saying that the House of Representatives has no right to launch an impeachment inquiry. And of course, Democrats disagree. Speaker Pelosi said, Mr. President, you are not above the law. You will be held accountable. All of this is coming just a day after the EU ambassador uh, Sunland was told that he was not allowed to testify on Capitol Hill. The State Department pulled that testimony within minutes of when our reporters were expecting him to come through the doors. And the chair of that committee, Adam Schiff, was equally stunned by it, as were Republicans on that committee. Everyone was really expecting Gordon Sunland to make an appearance for that deposition. And then the State Department laying down the gauntlet saying, nope, we're not going to play ball. And then within hours, we received this letter from the White House to House Democrats. Uh, and, you know, I think we have some sound from Adam Schiff on what he believes this decision by the administration to not participate, not in the impeachment investigation in its entirety, but simply not allowing Gordon Sullen to testify is actually evidence of further obstruction. The failure to produce this witness, the failure to produce these documents, um, we consider yet additional strong evidence of obstruction of the constitutional functions of Congress, a co-equal branch of government. There are four issues that we are looking at, at least four issues that we are looking at, all that go to the heart of our national security. And by preventing us from hearing from this witness and obtaining these documents, the President and Secretary of State are taking actions that prevent us from getting the facts needed to protect the nation's security. And that was, of course, House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff. And he was speaking about Gordon Sunland, the EU ambassador, and testifying about that phone call with Ukraine, those text messages that were made public by uh, the former envoy to Ukraine, uh, Volker. And then you had, of course, Republicans come out and this, Mary Alice, was what was interesting. They came out and said this was a kangaroo court. But if you listen to what Republicans said and then take into account what Adam Schiff said, the letters that were sent later really echoed both of their respective parties. What we see in this impeachment is a kangaroo court, and Chairman Schiff is acting like a malicious Captain Kangaroo. You think about what the Democrats are trying to do 
impeached the President of the United States 13 months prior to an election based on an anonymous whistleblower with no firsthand knowledge who has a bias against the President. So you're exactly right. You have Republicans there on Capitol Hill sounding a lot like the administration uh, overnight in that letter, together making a process argument, not necessarily an argument about the facts of what the president said to the Ukrainian leader. No, instead, they're making an argument that the process taking place on Capitol Hill is not one that they like or support. But look, Serena, what president would like to be impeached? Like, this is not fun for them. No, definitely not something any president would want to go through. But it is a question of process. And really, that comes back to the question of do House Democrats need to take a vote before they go forward with this impeachment inquiry? And that's been the talking point coming out of the White House is there's been no vote. And so far, Nancy Pelosi has been able to rebuff those efforts by saying, we don't have to take a vote. There is no constitutional requirement that we take a vote before launching an impeachment inquiry. And she is correct. But there is also precedent. Every previous administration that has gone through this no fun impeachment process There was a vote on Capitol Hill, and that is why Republicans are arguing that this process is really not something that is fair to them. If there was a vote and the impeachment process went forward that way, it would open up new avenues to the White House when it comes to having lawyers present for depositions and their own witnesses as part of this impeachment inquiry. But I can hear Democrats saying they don't need an impeachment inquiry to subpoena these members of the administration. You know, late Tuesday night, the Democrats issued a formal subpoena for Ambassador Sutherland to testify. They have that subpoena power. They've given themselves that rule, those rules. The House has given themselves those rules um, a while ago. That's not new for investigators up there to do oversight, to use subpoena power to do oversight. And especially when you look at someone like Ambassador Sunland, who was apparently, by the look of these text messages, right in the thick of these negotiations with Ukraine. I mean, there's these text messages that, that were released earlier that talked about, that, that, that show Sunland saying there's multiple conversations going on between POTUS and Z, referring to the Ukrainian president. Let's talk. Uh, arguing with some of the other ambassadors about what exactly is going on and what's being asked. That statement, there is no quid pro quo coming after one of the other ambassadors in Ukraine made a question of if there was a quid pro quo. Right. So he, he's in the thick of it. He's he's texting with the other ambassadors about this very question, about the role that, that the president wants the Ukraine government to play and what's being asked and, and are they all on the same page? Democrats are like, we want to talk to him. We get to talk to him. But but really, Mary Alice, we can look back and subpoenas have been working for this administration. It's been a tactic they've used on part of these other investigations. Subpoena, delay, and then the court process. And so that is really a question of where this is going to come down. Remember, it's not just the subpoena they've now issued for Sunland Gordon, who is an ambassador. There's also a current active one for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo that was issued on Friday. There's another active one for the White House. That's just around the impeachment inquiry. But how long have we been talking about subpoenas when it comes to things like the president's taxes and other investigations that are actively ongoing on Capitol Hill that are playing out now in the court process? So I think it'll be really interesting to watch how these subpoenas related to the impeachment inquiry might play out differently from those other House investigations, which also issued subpoenas. These ones are due on October 15th. 
in every case with the ones surrounding the impeachment inquiry, we've heard House Democrats emphasize that they will view the failure to comply as a sign of obstruction. And that would give them more leverage in those subpoenas than perhaps the other investigations. Yeah, they might go ahead and just say that one of their articles of impeachment is an obstruction of justice. In their minds, it'll be, like you said, very important to watch how the courts weigh in. And if Democrats wait for the courts to weigh in on what and their we should next move is. point out that the previous articles of impeachment that were brought against Clinton and Nixon both were based on obstruction of justice. We have coming up in just a little bit a really interesting interview with the former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who's been all over on national television and around the country campaigning for Senator Bernie Sanders, both in 2016 and in 2020. She's really made a name for herself by being one of his most ardent and vocal supporters. You know, Serena, we're going to get to this in a little bit. It's been a really tough week for the Sanders campaign. You know, in the last few days, he's had to answer questions from reporters about his health. He made it home to Vermont there where he's been resting up some more since his heart attack and an emergency procedure with his heart. He said on camera, admitting to reporters, Uh, I must confess that I was dumb. Uh, I was born and thank God that I have a lot of energy. Uh, And, you know, during this campaign, I've been doing in some cases three or four rallies a day running all over the state, Iowa, New Hampshire, wherever. And yet I, in the last month or two, uh, just was more fatigued than I usually have been. So, uh, and I should have listened to those symptoms. I should have listened to those symptoms. So if there's any message that I hope we can get out there is that I want people to pay attention to their symptoms. And that was just the beginning. Then overnight, this new news. His daughter-in-law passed away, only 46 years old, incredibly young. Oh my gosh, this feels like such a blow in that campaign. And that family is already really struggling. And it'll be really interesting to hear how his campaign is rallying around him to really step in and fill the void that some might be feeling from him not going 110 miles an hour on these campaign stops as he deals with his family and personal issues. The senator isn't one to often talk about his family. He's not that kind of candidate. He doesn't run ads about his background and, in fact, often really pushed back on campaign staff that wanted him to run a more personal campaign. Mary Alice, you can speak to this extensively. You were out on the campaign trail with him in 2016. I would watch the campaign sometimes argue with him about wanting to to tell more of his personal story, get some of those like cutesy shots with him and his grandkids. And it just wasn't it wasn't his M.O. It wasn't what interested him. But that wasn't because he wasn't close to his family. This daughter-in-law that passed was extremely close to him. Uh, His son was someone that was by his side all the time, day in and day out on the campaign trail. He would light up when those grandkids would get flown in to spend a few days with him on the campaign trail. I remember watching um, him trick-or-treat with with these grandkids arm-in-arm, hand-in-hand back in 2015. His family is everything. It will be hard for him to be out there campaigning. Um, But he is also a crusader. He is a fighter. It is also hard for me to imagine him pausing I know there's going to be a lot of eyes on whether or not he he does go to the debate that's next week, like his campaign says he's plans to do. So we'll be back in just a moment with that interview that we are really looking forward to. Former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who is one of those very vocal advocates for Bernie Sanders' campaign. 
And welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're happy and lucky to be joined by a close friend and advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, the national campaign co-chair, Nina Turner. Senator Turner, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a really tough time. And I know that just over the weekend, uh, he lost, the senator lost his daughter-in-law. And he's, I feel for you all. And we're thinking about you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that news came, you know, to the family as he was, you know, making his way out of the hospital. So it has been a very, very heavy time for him, the family, you know, him and Dr. Jane Sanders, Levy, and the entire Sanders family, and then by extension. So thank you both so much and the ABC family for recognizing this difficult time. I know the the Sanders clan is a close one, and I um, remember meeting Levy and his family and his adorable children on the campaign trail several times. Um, Senator Sanders is a private man, but is um, just so close to those grandkids. They they are pals. They're his life, as you know, uh, Mary Alice, because you have been so close with the senator over the years, and you know they're part of his motivation for doing what he does. So. Yeah, between, you know, what has happened to him physically and then the family by extension, uh, this has been difficult. So anybody, you know, well wishes, prayers if you pray, but just really sending out those positive thoughts for the senator and his family will really go a long way. I was struck by something he said yesterday. Uh, He said that he might have to change the nature of his campaign. He is not going to like doing that. He likes going full steam ahead. I mean, I remember days where he would do five or six rallies, and there are these mega rallies. He stands up there for an hour. He has so much energy normally. I mean, how is he going to adjust? Is his campaign going to have to look different? He he is going to have to adjust. He has said that. It is going to be very difficult for him because he is, you know, that long-distance runner in him is still very much there. But even him, you know, scaling back is still light years ahead of what most campaigns are doing. So he will still be able to outrun, outpace, and run circles around the other campaigns in terms of his activities. But I understand your point. For somebody like him who is so accustomed to going at a uh, a breakneck pace, this is going to be a transition for him in, in particular, but we're here to help him make that transition. I think everybody who knows and understands him loves him, whether you agree with him or not, but just understands that he is a man on a mission, uh, will be very supportive of this move of the senator. It is absolutely the right thing for but, him to do. And he doesn't have to do all this. He's been out on this. As you know, he's never stopped campaigning. Mm-hmm. Really, <laughs> He has never. So he has time on task. He can withdraw some some things from the bank, so to speak. And, Senator, it's not just scaling back for his own health, but with his family as well. I'm sure they need him at home given this tough time. Being in the campaign, is that going to change with the trauma, the the family loss? Well, um, thank you for that question, Serena. I mean, everybody's going to have to do more. And when I I say that, I mean, everybody's working extraordinarily hard, working to make – Senator Sanders, the 46th president of the United States of America, but people like me and the other national co-chairs, you know, Mayor Cruz, Rokana, uh, Brother Ben Cohen, and all of the other national surrogates, the people who are typically are more of the forward-facing, we're going to have to do more uh, to be forward-facing for the senator, particularly me. I mean, I've been traveling all over the country certainly focusing a lot of my time on South Carolina, but I will be going into other states even more. So we're just going to rally 
around the senator like a campaign family should do when your principal needs you even more. So we will work even harder than we have been working, and we'll do it in a, in a way that really complements the senator in a deeper way, especially for the forward-facing work that he is so accustomed to doing most of it himself. I, there's been a lot of questions from critics about whether he's been transparent enough about his health and, and this big health scare. You've been right there defending him like you always are. <laughs> you said, I saw one uh, interview where you said that was ridiculous and asinine. Senator Turner, doesn't he have an obligation to all those million donors, to voters, that he's asking them for his support for this huge job, which is physically demanding? Doesn't he have an obligation to be pretty transparent about the status of his health? Well, Mary Alice, there's, Alice, there's nobody more transparent than Senator Bernie Sanders. I, I, I want people to wrap their minds around you have a medical emergency. And it doesn't matter that he's a public figure. It doesn't matter that he's running for president. First and foremost, he is a human being. He is a man, a flesh and blood person who had a medical emergency. Your first thought, the first thought of your wife, the first thought of your children is not to say, wait, let me stop you know, my medical emergency, let me pause for a commercial break so that I can notify the media. It is ridiculous for people to think in those terms. As soon as we knew what the doctors were saying, as soon as Dr. Jane Sanders was able to get to her husband, the first release came out about the stents and about the clogged artery. You know, more tests and things are done. And then we had a statement from Dr. Jane Sanders, and then ultimately a statement for, from the doctor. Those things are not unreasonable. And so for people, and I'm not saying you two are doing that, but there are forces out there that want to paint that the senator has not been but, transparent. He has been very transparent, senator, and he I, will continue to be. But, Senator, let me ask you this. It was about, what, three days bef- between that health emergency and the statement. Even if his family recognizably cannot stop what they're doing in the case of a medical emergency, notify the press, wouldn't that be up to folks like you to come out and inform the public of what's happening, considering if he did win this mega responsibility uh, of being president, it would be beneficial, it would be the right of the public to know what's going on medically? The public was informed and in a timely fashion, so I'm pushing back on that was informed in a pub, in a timely fashion, in a very public fashion. It is certainly not the campaign's job, nor should the campaign ever. We're never getting in front of Dr. Jane Sanders. We're never going to get in front of his family on matters like this. So if people want to, you know, so-called hold this against the senator, let them do that. But it is ridiculous, and I think it is something that is making a non-issue. I mean, here we have a president in the office right now who – you know, allegedly broke into the offices, not him himself, but sent people to break into the offices of his uh, physician. We still don't know what his health condition is because it's the best ever as everything that he says. And then people want to overlay on a man who has been consistent, courageous and transparent all of his public life. It was a health emergency, got the information out in what we consider a timely fashion And the senator has been interviewing ever since he has been released, as we all know. So we did what was necessary to do. So So I don't want people to conflate this and make more of this than what it is. So moving past the timely question of timeliness, given the age of the senator and the age of the other top contenders in the Democratic Party, do you think that that now, considering he's had this health scare, is something that voters are going to be worried about? 
they shouldn't worry about that. Age is nothing but a number. The senator has, uh, as you as you pointed out, all of the top tier candidates are in their seventies. Every single one of them span the gamut from early seventies to late seventies. We as a nation try to push back, although we got a long way to go on sexism and racism. Long way to go, and ageism is in that category too. So. No one should worry about that at all, unless we're trying to say that once you get to a certain level of age in your life, you don't have a right to continue to do good work and do what you believe is in the best interest of this nation. And I know no one is saying that. If we all live long enough, we will be in our early 70s. And I'm sure we don't want a next generation of people uh, saying that we should sit down somewhere. So, no, people should not worry about that. If the person is, is... has the vitality, you know, the vigor, the heart, the compassion to do this great work, then let them do it. And the voters will decide. But no, there's nothing to worry about. They, they should worry. be concerned, though, if they're electing somebody who has now a heart valve, as you mentioned. No, no they should not worry. Not okay. worry whatsoever. That's you know, what a vice president is for. They shouldn't <laughs> worry. And who are you thinking if you got the nomination for that? <laughs> now, see, you too. <laughs> <laughs> Too uh, early well, to I like say. That I like that question. <laughs> we pivoted right into that for you. I did. I did. It was, we're, running, we're running this race, getting through the primary. Uh, the senator will certainly make that decision when that, when that time comes. But I don't want people to worry. You know, babies die. People die in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. Um, certainly if nature takes its course, the, the likelihood, we, we understand that. But it's not just to put some label on the 70-somethings that are running and make all that they're running for, particularly my senator, uh, be about his age. He is a truthful man. He's authentic. People know him for that. That is the strongest quality of his reputation is, is his authenticity. And he will be always open and honest. And if the senator could not continue to do this race and give it his all, he would not be doing it because he loves his country so much, which is why he's putting it all on the line. So, no, I don't think people should worry, not just about my senator, but I, I'm, I'm against ageism altogether. So I'm shouting out uh, the 70-year-olds, too, even though I want my 70-something to win this race. <laughs> I want to ask you about another headline out uh, today. Senator Elizabeth Warren now says that she, too, like Senator Bernie Sanders, will absolutely not do traditional big money fundraisers, even in a general election, if she were to be nominated. What's your reaction? I'm glad she's following the lead of Senator Bernard Sanders. Is it getting harder to draw comparisons and distinctions between the two of them? No, it's not. And and the voters will draw those distinctions. But one of the things, and and Mary Mary Alice, you know this even more because you were with us on the last campaign. The senator has changed the narrative. And just think about that. To have Senator Warren come out and say that really is a beautiful thing. And what it points to is the fact that not only is she, but every single one of the presidential nominees to a degree, whether they want to admit it or not, because of the courage and the consistency that Senator Bernie Sanders had, they're all running on the gospel, according to Bernard Sanders, in some form or fashion. What it shows is that 
the power of his movement, you know, the challenge Democratic presidential candidates not to bow down at the trough of multi-millionaires and billionaires and to take their campaigns to the people and to raise money that way. So whether we're talking about raising money through the grassroots, and I'm glad that the Senator Senator Warren has seen the light, that is a beautiful thing because it's beautiful for democracy, or whether it is about Medicare for all, you know, canceling student debt, standing up against, you know, the corrupt system, all of those things came to a national light in ways we have not seen since Eugene Debs. For our listeners, though, who may be having that uh, difficult time drawing that distinction, what would you tell them are the big differences? That the senator has been, you know, to quote my brother, Dr. Cornell West, a long distance runner for justice for a very long time. I would challenge listeners to go back and juxtaposition the records of all of the candidates. I don't want to make this. This is not just about, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Sanders is in competition, or let me rephrase this. All of the other candidates are in competition with Senator Bernie Sanders, and all of the candidates up there want to be president. But there is only one candidate up there who has been consistent. You can roll the tape. We all know that he has been, you know, preaching from the same hymnal for well over 40 years right now. There's only one candidate who has the courage. I mean, he has an anti-endorsers list. No other candidate has an anti endorsers list full of billionaires and multimillionaires who have went on the record saying that they do not want Senator Bernie Sanders to become president of the United States of America. And you know why they don't? Because they know that things are going to fundamentally change for them so that we can uh, raise up the poor and the working class and the middle class in this country and that they cannot have it all. Senator St. Courage, Conviction, consistency. That's Senator Bernie Sanders, and we can lay his record head-to-head with any of the candidates. He didn't equivocate on Medicare for All. He didn't call it a framework. He's been standing strong and bold for Medicare for All, which is the foundational centerpiece of his campaign. He didn't take big dollars in 2016. He kept that same fervor during this election. And now the other candidates, if they want to be viable to the Democratic electorate in particular— they got to move where he moves. But Medicare and for All still at, is very contentious, especially among independents. You don't think he's going to have to secede the fact that many people don't want to lose the health insurance they currently have and that could work against him? No, I don't. You know why? Because nobody really is in love with their health in, uh, insurance company. They love their doctors. And to the extent that they drill down into, into that more to know that they're already paying premiums, co-pays and deductibles, a private tax on the side to insurance companies that can deny them the health care that they need and they deserve versus Senator Sanders' plan that takes all of that away. We put money in a global pot and nobody has to pay anything up front that you can do anything in this country that you want to do and not worry about losing your job or not worry about having to pay the high cost of prescription drugs. Those things matter. And there is no candidate more positioned to win over independent voters than Senator Sanders. So we will continue to talk about these issues in ways that touch people's hearts so that they can see the light versus the the messages that are coming from the people in the insurance industry that do not want to see Medicare for all happen in this country. Medicare for all is the better way to go. And we will continue to have conversations. As you know, the senator does not change his message based on what polls say. 
this is what he fundamentally believes, and he has believed it for a very long time. And there are lots of people who believe and know <laughs> that, the same thing. That is true. He has been talking about it for a very long time. <laughs> um, uh, Nina Turner, before we let you go, regardless of what happens with impeachment, do you think the fact that President Trump has now has a pretty consistent drumbeat about the former vice president's family and has been very aggressively and personally going after uh, Biden's family, could that hurt Biden if he is the eventual Democratic nominee? It could, you know, but, you know, Senate, I mean, President Trump got some nerve, but he got lots of nerve. Uh, we already know that, you know, as corrupt as he is, I mean, he, ne- he didn't drain the swamp. He added to it. He has been profiting from that office, and so has the members of his family. But but he also, but and, not necessarily, but and, he is, though, the master of pulling other people down with him. So it's certainly something that has to be of concern, you know, to, to all Democrats. And, you know, the Biden campaign is definitely going to have to will have to deal with that. Do you do you think, though, that if I may interject, do you think, though, that as Democrats, there should be more unity around pushing back on these claims by the president as as Democrats from the DNC? For example, there's been some criticism that they haven't really stepped up to the plate to counterpunch the narrative coming from the RNC in an effective manner. Yeah, well, the the DNC should deal head up with the RNC, but those matters are left to Chairman Perez. What I am most concerned about these days is keeping my senator doing the things that he is doing to transform this nation and to make him the 46th president of the United States of America. Serena, I got a lot of stuff on my to-do list, and what the DNC does is not one of them right now. But as fellow Democrats, should Senator Sanders speak out more forcefully against the president? Should Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren speak out more forcefully against the president and these claims on the Biden family? Senator Biden has to he will deal with that. You know, his campaign has been dealing with that. We're running for president. They're running for president. We'll see what happens ultimately, whether the happy family comes together. But our singular focus right now is is making Senator Sanders the 46th president of the United States of America. Well, Nina Turner, former Ohio state senator and the national co-chair for Bernie 2020, we thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much. Especially we know it's been a hard time for the senator's campaign, and we really appreciate your time. It has. Thank you, Mary Alice, and thank you, Serena, so much. And to all of your listeners, much appreciated. Have a good day. You as well. Well, Serena, uh, Nina Turner always brings the, I don't know, the, the, passion. Fi- the fire, the passion. It was interesting. She kept using language like the gospel of Bernie Sanders. And she's really out there preaching his story still. Preaching his story, doubling down that he will be the next 46th president. And, you know, we wish their family all, obviously all the best given this difficult time. But it seems evident that the senator is not going to be slowing down in this competition. Well, it's interesting because he said he's going to have to. And she said, yeah, maybe, but he will still be light years ahead, running circles around the other candidates. I mean, it's going to be tough. The proof will be in the pudding if he actually can bring that level of energy again. I mean, his point of pride in 2016 was that he was out campaigning Hillary Clinton. He would say that. He had done twice. You were with him. I mean, he, he would make these comments like, I did twice as many rallies, or his team probably would for him more often. You know, just day after day, pounding the pavement. It's going to be a big adjustment if the campaign has to look different. Well, and it could 
be to his benefit. It didn't apparently work in 2016, although he was out campaigning Hillary Clinton. And so maybe taking a step back, putting more emphasis into smaller events, more events in a bigger capacity, changing their dynamics could work to their benefit in the long run. We'll have to really watch and see. Yeah, it was interesting. Also, when we asked that question about the Biden family and whether or not the president's attacks on Joe Biden could hurt Joe Biden in a general election, she was very careful. First, she said it could. And then she tried to pivot and not really go there. And really talked about the DNC as a family, but focusing their efforts not on defending Biden as a colleague for another member of the DNC, but saying that that's up to the DNC watching her words and how she came across there. Yeah. She said everyone's running for president. Everyone wants their guy or gal to win. Well, it was really interesting, and we were grateful that uh, the Sanders campaign had someone to chat with us because we know it's been a tough time for them. Yes. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of Powerhouse Politics. Thank you, Serena, for joining me. It was my pleasure. My first time on the podcast. I know. A big success. (laughs) The women taking over. Uh, Well, thank you to our producers, Avery Miller, Angie Ack, Trevor Hastings. I'm Mary Alice Parks. John and Rick will be back next time for another episode of Powerhouse Politics.